Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time, in chapter 16, we discussed the unlikely entry of David into the story. Recall how Samuel had been sent by God to find a new king. He arrived in Bethlehem at the house of Yishai. Although Yishai's sons were all gathered, in order for Shemuel to choose one of them as the future king, none of them were candidates. And it was David, the youngest child, who had not even been considered by his father or his brothers for a possible role, who was summoned from the sheep and brought before Shemuel and anointed as future king of Israel. All of this happening secretly, quietly, clandestinely. As the chapter progressed and Shaul was stricken with his debilitating melancholy, his servant suggested that perhaps music might be able to lift his moods. And one of them, who knew of David from Beit Lechem, indicated to Shaul that this was perhaps a candidate to lift his spirits through skillful playing on the harp or lyre. David was summoned from Beit Lechem, and this is how he effectively entered into the orbit of Shaul the king, and the court for that matter. Shaul took a liking to David, had a deep trust for him and a love for him, and appointed him as his armor bearer. And whenever Shaul's spirit was stricken, David would play the harp and Shaul would be calmed. And with that, the chapter ended. As we discussed at the time, all of it really was a way of indicating that divine guidance and divine intervention was responsible for introducing David to the story. David in chapter 16 is nothing more than a passive object who was anointed by Shemuel unexpectedly, who is summoned and brought before Shaul in a quite unlikely development. And the emphasis of the chapter, therefore, is on not anything that David does in order to promote himself, in order to ultimately offer himself as a candidate for kingship, but rather that which God has decided which the divine will has selected David and has therefore manipulated or orchestrated the events such that David is now able to move forward and ultimately secure the throne. That's the chapter 16 version of events. Chapter 17 offers us an entirely different perspective. It is perhaps the most famous chapter in all of Sefer Shemuel, the showdown, the battle between David on the one hand and the Philistine giant and champion Goliath, Goliath, on the other. 
the chapter opens with the Philistines once again gathering their forces for war. This time they are in the area of Beit Shemesh, a valley called the Valley of Elah separates the Philistine forces on the one hand from the Israelite forces on the other. We note, of course, that there has been development in terms of the Israelite army. When we first met the Israelite army, chapter 13 and chapter 14, there was quite a bit of disarray. If not for Yonatan and his heroics, the Israelites would have been defeated. In chapter 17, it seems as if Shaul has already created a serious fighting force. The Philistine army is now described as being arrayed against an Israelite army. Both of them poised on opposite ridges with the Valley of Elah in between. And behold, the Philistine champion emerged from the Philistine encampment. His name was Goliath from the city of Gut, and he was described by the text as being exceedingly tall and exceedingly well-armed. The verses in question, verses 5 and 6 and 7, are a highly unusual description of Goliath's armor and weaponry, literally describing him from head to foot as being incredibly armed and incredibly dangerous. Perhaps this description would be appropriate in the Homeric epics, but it's highly unusual for the Hebrew Bible. The reason why it's mentioned here is to emphasize and to indicate that this giant, this man, this Philistine champion is effectively invincible. And he taunts the Israelites, send forth someone to fight me. If we defeat you, you will be our slaves. And if you defeat us, we will be your slaves. But as Goliath suggests, you are all, he says, servants and slaves of Shaul. Send one of you forth to fight me. Implication, of course, Shaul as king of Israel should be the most likely candidate to engage Goliath in battle. But Shaul, of course, is not up for the challenge. Shaul makes no attempt to take responsibility in this moment and face down the giant. Quite the opposite. The text reports that Shaul and all of Israel heard the words of this Philistine and they were exceedingly frightened by what he said. In the meantime, we find that David had gone back home to Beit Lechem. In the meantime, David's three oldest brothers had gone off to war with Shaul's army, and David's father, Yishai, now sends him with supplies to the Israelite camp in order to offer his brothers relief and to inquire about their welfare. He quickly leaves the sheep, makes his way to the Israelite encampment, and just as he is arriving and speaking with his brothers, who should go out as he has been doing for days, but Goliath, who taunts the Israelites once again with the same taunts that he tends to offer. And this time, however, David responds. 
that whoever defeats Goliath will be made a wealthy man by the king and will win the king's daughter in marriage and will cause his household to be free from taxation, David is incredibly interested in the possibility of facing down the giant. Now, of course, the fact that Shaul had to make those offers, offers of wealth, offers of his daughter in marriage, offers of freeing the household of the champion against Goliath from taxation indicates just how overwhelming was the challenge of facing Goliath on the battlefield. David inquires once again about the reports of what the king will offer. His older brother Eliav is disappointed with David, thinking that David has come in order to gawk at the battle. David says, I don't know why you're upset at me. What have I done? Verse 29. Hello, Davarhu. It's just words. So at this point in the story, it seems as if David is not really taking on the possibility of fighting Goliath. But nevertheless, David's response that in fact, he has the ability to defeat Goliath David's response is heard by Shaul, and David is brought before the king. By the way, David indicated back in verse number 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyways, that he now curses and humiliates the army of the living God. And this is already David indicating that in his mind, it's not simply the Israelites that are opposing Goliath, but their God as well. And Goliath, therefore, in taunting the Israelites and their God, is an affront not only to the Israelite army, but to the God of Israel. Shaul turns to David. He says, there is no way that you will be able to fight this Philistine. You are just a lad. And he, of course, has been an Ishmilchama, a man of war, a soldier from his youth. There is no way you can possibly defeat him. But David responds, when I was a shepherd, the lion and the bear stole a sheep from the flock, and I went after that lion and that bear, and I struck them down, and I saved that sheep, and I killed those animals. I killed the lion and the bear, says David, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has cursed the army of the living God. So Shaul obviously expresses skepticism about David's ability to kill Goliath, and David's response is adamant. I put my trust in the God of Israel the very God that allowed me to prevail against the lion and the bear, will allow me to defeat the Philistine. This is all, of course, very, very striking. Because Shaul, at this point in the story, has retreated, as it were, into his shell of passivity. He doesn't express any sort of trust or faith in God. He's certainly not willing to engage Goliath on the battlefield. 
And here is this little upstart called David, who really knows nothing about organized warfare, offering himself as a candidate to defeat the giant. Shaul says, Go, may God be with you. And in one of the most unforgettable scenes from the chapter, Shaul dresses David in his own armor. He places the bronze helmet on his head, and he places the coat of mail upon him, and David puts on the sword over his uniform, but the text reports that he was unable to walk with the armor because he simply wasn't used to it, and he removes it, leaving himself entirely defenseless. The rabbis have a fascinating midrash. The text reports in verse number 38 that Shaul dressed David in his armor, Vayalbesh Shaul et David Madav. Madav, the word for uniform in modern Hebrew, or the armor of the soldier in ancient Hebrew, has to do with midah, which means measurement. And the rabbis say, of course, Shaul, as the king of Israel, had armor which was made to measure. But miraculously, when he put it on David, it fit him perfectly. And of course, that's a rabbinic way of saying that something is happening here. As David dons Shaul's armor, even though he will ultimately take it off, it is already an indication that he is going to become king in Shaul's place. And there is Shaul, as it were, installing him as his successor. David instead takes his shepherd's staff and five smooth stones, which he retrieves from the stream bed. He places them in his yalkut, in his pack, his shepherd's pack, with his slingshot, and he now approaches the Philistine. When Goliath sees him with his shield bearer in front of him, again covered head to toe in this invincible armor, he looks at David, he disgraces him and humiliates him because David, of course, doesn't look like a warrior at all. Goliath says to David, Come close. I plan to slay you and to feed your flesh to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field. David now responds with one of the most unforgettable lines in the Hebrew Bible, verse number 45. You come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, and I come with the name of the God of hosts, the God of the hosts of Israel, whom you have disgraced. This day, says, says David, God will turn you over to my hands and I will strike you down and I will remove your head from upon you. And all of this people will know that God will save not through the sword or the spear, 
rather unto God is the victory in warfare, and he will turn you over into our hands. All of this, of course, recalls so many other moments in the story up until now, where the people of Israel or their king were called upon to have trust in God in spite of the overwhelming odds that were against them. The other person in the story that speaks the kind of language that David speaks was, of course, Jonathan in chapter 14, when he heroically attacked the Philistine encampment with his servant boy and used very, very similar language, although, of course, not quite, elo- not quite as eloquently as David. As Jonathan put it, for God, there is no difference whether one is many or few. God will give victory. And David, of course, is a much more expanded and eloquent version of that idea. The Philistine approaches. David runs to meet him. He puts a stone in his slingshot. He flings a single stone. Recall, of course, that he had brought five stones to the battle. He doesn't need the other four. The very first stone that he flings strikes Goliath in the forehead, presumably the one little point in his armor where there was a space somewhere between the helmet and his forehead. The the aim is impeccable. The strike is precise. Goliath falls to the ground. David now stands over him, uses Goliath's own sword to slay him, and the Philistines now flee. And when the Philistines flee, Shaul's army, the Israelites, pursue them all the way to their cities, and they are completely defeated. It is an overwhelming and completely unexpected victory. Now, of course, if we contrast David in this chapter versus chapter 16, it is a completely different perspective. If chapter 16 was about David, who is the passive object of divine intervention and guidance, This chapter is about David, who is the active subject who earns his chance at the throne through his own enthusiasm and his own initiative. David is the one who presents himself as ready to fight Goliath. David is the one who goes out to meet him on the battlefield in spite of the fact that it is completely uneven insofar as the experience and the weaponry that is available. David is the one who calls out the name of God as his source of strength and victory and then single-handedly overcomes the giant with a slingshot that doesn't miss the mark. If ever there was an individual in the Hebrew Bible who deserved kingship through their merits, it would be be David in this particular moment. So we might say we have two versions, as it were, 
of David's election or David's preparations for election to kingship. Chapter 16 speaks about God guiding the events. Chapter 17 speaks about David taking the initiative. Which one is correct? Obviously, they are both correct. We need both of these moments, both of these stories, in order to create a fuller picture of what it means to be chosen by God. To be chosen by God, on the one hand, means that God's will is unfathomable. He will choose whom he will choose. On the other hand, to be chosen by God means to take the initiative, to step forward, and to do what has to be done all the while trusting in God as the source of one's success. And David, who now enters the story as the ultimate and ideal king in ancient Israel, although he is far from the throne at this point, but these are the stories that introduce him as being the one who will one day be the ideal king of Israel. It's in this particular moment that the Tanakh chooses to give us, as it were, the fullest possible perspective on what it means to be chosen by God. To be chosen by God means that God has a plan. To be chosen by God also means that the human being who is selected embraces that destiny and takes on that mission and shows initiative at the critical moment. The chapter concludes in an unsettling fashion. The end of the chapter reports that when Shaul saw David going out to fight the Philistine, he said to Avner, his chief of staff, whose son is this lad, Avner? Avner said, by your life, king, I do not know. The king said, find out whose son this lad is. When David returned from striking down the Philistine, Avner brought him before the king with Goliath's head in his hand. Shaul turned to him and said, whose son are you, lad? David responded, I am the son of your servant Yishai from Beit Lechem. This is, of course, a very, very difficult moment. How is it possible that Shaul does not know who David is in spite of the fact that chapter 16 reported to us that David played the harp or the lyre before Shaul and Shaul loved him very much and made him into his armor bearer? This is a question that commentaries ancient and modern have struggled with. Some of them have suggested that as king, Shaul doesn't know everybody in the court, even though he may have had a liking for David's harp playing. Others say that perhaps part of Shaul's mental condition is that he suffers from memory loss. Rashi and the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, understood somewhat more profoundly that when Shaul asks the question, who is this lad or whose son is this lad? He is not asking a question of identity. He knows who David is. The question is deeper than that. What Shaul is really asking himself, as it were, is, is this 
the lad, the man that will one day dethrone me and succeed me as king? And that's, of course, a different kind of question entirely. We will have to see how the events play themselves out next time. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.